You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. California Secretary of State Alex Padilla will soon be sworn in to finish out the Senate term of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Padilla joins the Post to discuss his hopes for a Biden-Harris administration and how he plans to make his mark in Washington. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post, and welcome to Washington Post Live. So when Kamala Harris was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2016, she made history as the first Black person elected to represent the state in the Senate, and only the second Black woman to serve in the Senate. With her election as vice president, Governor Gavin Newsom got to appoint a successor to fill out the remainder of her term by choosing Alex Padilla, the California Secretary of State. Not only did Governor Newsom choose a longtime friend and ally, he made history. Senator Senate designate Padilla will be the first Latino to represent the state in the United States Senate. And it is my pleasure to welcome to Washington Post Live California Secretary of State and Senate Senator Designate. It's taking still after all this time, it's taking me a while to get used to saying it. Senator Designate Alex Padilla, welcome to Washington Post Live. So thank you, Jonathan. Uh, great to be with you. Hope uh, first of many. Yes, well, yes, guaranteed. So we talked about a week ago, just after your your designation uh, on MSNBC. So now a week later, how's it feel? Has it sunk in yet that you are about to become a United States Senator? Uh, I think it sinks in uh, more and more each day, both uh, the tremendous opportunity uh, that it represents, but also the tremendous responsibility. You know, it's a significant enough job uh, under normal times, but uh, given the COVID-19 pandemic, which we talked about on, on the show last week, uh, and you know, add to that the incidents of uh, this last Wednesday, what transpired at the Capitol, you know, as horrific as those images were to, to watch, you know, equally horrific that it really didn't come as a shock to many people if you've been paying attention to the toxic rhetoric uh, that uh, our nation's been going through for, for the last four years. So uh, the need to get to work Quickly, the gravity of a lot of these issues is not lost on me. Uh, it's been uh, drinking out of the fire hose in, in transition, but uh, I'm eager and ready to get to work. Well, I'm glad you brought up what happened on January 6th because I wondered what your reaction was to seeing the images be coming from the U.S. Capitol with pro-Trump um, insurrectionists storming the United States Capitol. As someone who is about to join that body, what are you thinking now in terms of the government actually being able to function once the Biden-Harris administration is inaugurated? Uh, it's, uh, uh, so I'm glad we have more than just a three-minute segment on, <laughs> on television here, because there's a lot to share. First of all, thank you for using the term insurrection, because uh, that's exactly what it was. It was not a protest. Uh, it wasn't even a right. It was an insurrection. It was a rebellion attacking the very foundation of our democracy. That is what we would, uh, as I said a second ago, as horrific as the images were and the violence was, uh, sad that it does not come as a shock if you've been paying attention to what's happening. You know, I saw this uh, one uh, uh, image floating around on Twitter from a, I don't know if it was a principal or a superintendent that said, you know, dear Congress, nobody should have to fear for their lives and hide under their desk when they're at work, signed every preschooler through 12th grader in America. All right, that not only hit home because it, it brings back, you know, the, the, in, the emotions and the feelings of Sandy Hook, of uh, Parkland, 
uh, and so many others. But if you extrapolate that, you know, it's the feeling that a lot of uh, communities of color have felt since before Charlottesville and after, since before George Floyd and after. I can tell you for Latinos, we have been feeling this since before the shooting in El Paso, before the shooting in Gilroy. Uh, and it's now at the doorstep for members of the House and members of the Senate. So uh, again, not, not a shock. Uh, and I hope it just rattles the consciousness to the monetary about it. I'll tell you the one silver lining of last Wednesday, because uh, I was in touch with uh, friends that are uh, serving in the House and in touch with my soon-to-be colleagues in the Senate, not once was there ever any question that once uh, the, the calm and order was restored, that both houses would reconvene and finish the job of, uh, of uh, the Electoral College vote acceptance uh, and announcement of uh, uh, Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. Secretary Padilla, what do you think, what, what should happen to President Trump right now? There, a resolution has been introduced in the House calling on Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment, and if nothing happens at a, by a certain period of time, impeachment proceedings are going to happen. Should the president be, in, be impeached? And if the trial gets underway, once you're finally sworn in as senator, will you vote to convict him? Uh, no doubt Trump should be removed as soon as possible. Uh, every day that he remains in office, he remains a clear and present danger to the country uh, and to our security. So uh, I think uh, Speaker Pelosi is absolutely right. Uh, come on, Pence, uh, invoke the 25th for the sake of the nation. And if they fail to do so, uh, then the House should move as quickly as possible. Uh, and yes, I would be a vote uh, in, in the Senate. Uh, Trump must be held accountable. A whole lot of others, uh, including a lot of his enablers, need to be held accountable. Nobody is above the law. So I do look forward to uh, not just investigations, uh, but prosecutions uh, at the appropriate time. Uh, a lot of your soon-to-be colleagues in the Senate on the Democratic side have been calling for, and I think a few Republicans as well, have been calling on Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley to, to mm -hmm. resign, to be removed from the Senate. Do you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. The letter of the law is clear. We started this conversation with calling last Wednesday what it was. It was an insurrection. And you were either enabling it and complicit with it, or you're not. And I think uh, the record is clear. That's why hometown papers in the home states of uh, uh, both Senators Cruz and Hawley have called for their resignation. Uh, it, it's not just a knee-jerk reaction. It's not just an opinion. Uh, the consequences of their actions uh, of the last four years uh, have been literally fatal. There, so you have Cruz and Hawley, but then there were six other senators who, in addition to those two, even after the insurrection, voted in favor of the Electoral College obligations. Again, you're about to join this body. How do you expect to work with people who, as you've said, were helped foster this or a part of this insurrection. Yeah, the, uh, so uh, again, it's a sort of mixed uh, uh, impressions that we're getting. Look at what happened in the House of Representatives. Uh, despite what happened on Wednesday, the majority, was it the majority of the Republican members in the House still voted to uphold the challenges unsuccessfully, but not even that changed their mind or opened their eyes. Uh, there was a few uh, members in, in the Senate, uh, Republican members, that still 
uh, went forward with challenging the results, but it was at least a little bit encouraging to see uh, a handful of Senate Republicans say, yeah, that's that crossed the line, enough is enough. And uh, they chose, even though they announced prior to that they would, they chose not to challenge the results, maybe the beginning of the turning of a page. Uh, look, I know I've been asked the, uh, the question a lot. I'm coming from California, the, the land of the resistance for the last four years and what's considered now a, a very blue state in the nation. But I'll remind people of my, uh, uh, of my history in public service. I started on the Los Angeles City Council, uh, where technically we serve on a, in a nonpartisan basis, working with Democrats and Republicans to get things done. When I was in the state legislature, the, the Democratic majorities were not nearly as big as they were as they are today. And a lot, including the budget, needing to be done on a two-thirds basis. I had to work with uh, colleagues on both sides of the aisle to get things done, and I did. Uh, and even the last six years, as Secretary of State, um, the, um, in the executive branch in California, but constantly coordinating, collaborating with Republican and Democratic colleagues across the country uh, to ensure, for the most part, a very you know safe, secure, accessible election during a global health pandemic. So I bring a lot of years and experience of working across the aisle. Uh, to this next chapter in the U.S. Senate. So that sounds like you're confident that you're going to be able to work with Republicans in the Senate, which is a whole different, a whole different playing field yeah. and a whole different ball game uh, than dealing with Republicans at the state level, where you actually you have to get things done, budgets have to be passed, things have to work. Uh, at the Senate, not so much. So, given that, are you still confident that you're going to be able to work with Republicans who haven't really shown um, uh, any interest in working with Democrats on the big issues? Look, I, I'm not suggesting in the least bit that it's going to be easy. <laughs> uh, I'm not even suggesting in the least bit that, uh, you know, it's going to be a whole lot of fun, but it's necessary. And yes, you have to keep hope alive. Those of us in public service, you know, we're, we're not tilting at windmills. We all believe we can make this nation, our respective states, and the world a better place. Uh, and that's why we choose not to be nine to fivers uh, in this line of work. So uh, I, I do, again, maybe just glimpses, but glimpses nonetheless of hope, optimism, and encouragement to see that there was movement amongst Senate Republicans uh, in the challenges to electoral college last Wednesday. Uh, just you know, one example that's come up because I'm, immigration reform is uh, yet another front burner item for the nation in uh, in the near term, uh, 2012 was actually not that long ago when there was a gang of eight, four Democrats, four Republicans that passed comprehensive immigration reform out of the U.S. Senate. Didn't, didn't clear the House, uh, but there's at least precedent for some of this activity. Maybe some of the members uh, have changed with retirements and whatnot. Maybe some of the members themselves have changed. Those are still there, but their politics have shifted. Uh, but uh, I got to be hopeful uh, nonetheless. One of the really horrendous things that are that is happening as a result of the coronavirus pandemic is the explosion of cases around the country, but no state is being hammered as hard as California. And I'm especially thinking of Los Angeles County. Um, can you talk about the impact of the pandemic on the state right now and what you think you can do as a senator to bring relief, bring action? Uh, to the Golden State. Sure. First, you know, let me underscore the, the the gravity of what we're dealing with. I mean, you see the headlines, you see the images uh, on the news. Uh, ICUs way beyond uh, capacity that they were set up for. Uh, the number of cases, the number of 
uh, fatalities each and every day. Uh, sadly, it doesn't come as a surprise. I mean, if every state in the nation would have been as aggressive in their actions early on in the pandemic as California was under Governor Newsom's leadership, uh, we could have had our arms around it much better, but we didn't. You know, the, the, what we're experiencing now is completely the result of uh, a failure and lack of cohesive national strategies, whether it's about vaccine distribution or even face coverings. Uh, you know, California did a lot of things right, but when you continue to allow travel between the states, especially states that have been way too lax and not nearly as aggressive into and out of states like California, add to that the, the, the predisposition of Californians uh, to contract the disease and be harder hit by it, right? We've known from the beginning, listen to Dr. Fauci, listen to the CDC, communities of color, uh, essential workers and other frontline workers uh, have higher risk of exposure, getting the disease and more severe impacts of it. So it felt like we were living on, on borrowed time and uh, it's just now uh, coming home to roost. So for that and many other reasons, I can't wait for January 20th. Uh, the Biden-Harris administration had made COVID response clearly a top, top priority. I'm looking forward to an administration that doesn't just believe in science, but that follows science and the expertise of the public health professionals uh, at the CDC and others. And what can I do uh, coming into the U.S. Senate? You know, it begins with asking all the right questions. Uh, it's great that two vaccines have already been approved. There seems to be others uh, on, on the way. That's great. But let's talk about production. Uh, we know that the first rounds of vaccines have been administered in different parts of the country, but the volume of doses available is nowhere near what we need sooner rather than later to get that uh, you know, vaccination rate across the country to the levels that we need to turn the tide on this pandemic. What about the distribution plant and the logistics involved? It's not just a matter of you know, refrigeration equipment. You know, are we targeting strategically the very communities that uh, experts have said are most vulnerable and most impacted? So I agree, health workers or the frontline workers should be the first to be vaccinated. But as we look at more broad vaccination, you know, let's go directly to the ground zeros in California and throughout the country. And last but not least, you know, after the last four years of grappling with a lot of election misinformation and disinformation, we're seeing it in the public health space as well, when there's doubts and hesitancy from some uh, to even want to get the vaccine, uh, we have to overcome that. We've got to trust the science and make sure people know we need the vaccine for their sake, for their family's sake, and for our nation's sake. Secretary Padilla, let's talk about the economic impact of this pandemic. As we saw last month, there was wrangling in the in the Senate, well, in Congress, over the size of the checks that should be sent to the American people who desperately need them, $600 or $2,000 as President Trump wanted, and that, that didn't happen. You come, if you come to Washington, where do you stand? Should the checks be, should the stimulus checks be $2,000? Look, if uh, there's a proposal to uh, uh, approve $2,000 uh, direct assistance to families, I vote for it in a heartbeat. Um, I'm, I'm going to challenge the premise of uh, Trump being supportive of it because if it was genuine uh, in that support. It would have heard from him a lot earlier. I know that the House did the right thing in passing it. Uh, McConnell squashed it in the Senate. Uh, the other thing I want to be clear on is these, these are not stimulus checks. These are basic survival checks. Folks that don't know where the next meal is coming from, folks that don't know if uh, you know they're going to be evicted at the end of the month. This this two thousand dollar direct assistance uh, is just survival for now, but we're going to need a lot more direct aid 
for many months until we get to the other side of this pandemic. Uh, so I'm going to be quickly be advocating for not just additional direct assistance to families, uh, direct assistance uh, to state and local governments, mm -hmm. including school districts, but not excluding uh, uh, exclusive to school districts. Uh, we've got to better support our healthcare infrastructure. Again, you see uh, uh, doctors, nurses, hospitals, community clinics, beyond the capacity they were built for, we have a lot more support to do to weather the pandemic uh, and then begin to rebuild the economy. Ah, you anticipated my, my question because I was going to ask you, should states, one of the other sticking points on Capitol Hill was whether Democrats wanted to help states and localities that, who, that have been crushed by uh, the pandemic and Republicans do not, but you, you definitely support uh, uh, aid to states and localities. Uh, of course, and, and look, I think m most people get it. Uh, while the news will, you know, uh, appropriately so cover the graphic images of what we're seeing in hospitals, ERs, and ICUs, for example, most people know when you're sick and you dial nine one one, who is it that comes to pick you up to transport you to the hospital? Uh, it's it's an ambulance, it's a fire department. That is a city, county jurisdiction. So you know we can. Uh, say, okay, the stimulus, but if you leave state and local government out, you're missing a big piece of the required infrastructure that we're all leaning on during this pandemic before we even get to the rebuilding part. So this is, we're still in survival mode. Uh, and again, another reason why so many people are more hopeful uh, come January 20th, there will be responsible leadership coming in with the Biden-Harris administration, new majority, uh, thin, but majority nonetheless in the U.S. Senate and the ongoing uh, leadership of Speaker Pelosi in the House. Let's talk about some, some other issues that might come your way during your, your term as senator. Adding seats to the Supreme Court, that was a big issue during the Democratic primary and at certain points during the, the general <clears throat> election campaign. If a proposal comes before the Senate to, to add seats to the Supreme Court, to stagger the terms of, or actually put a term limit of some sort on Supreme Court justices, would you support it? Uh, uh, ex uh, expanding, uh, in my mind, balancing the Supreme Court, uh, absolutely. Anybody who tries to criticize those proposals uh, and tries to reframe it as stacking, like stacking is what uh, McConnell and Trump have been doing the last several years. Uh, so yes, it's time to rebalance the Supreme Court. Uh, in terms of term limits, I'll be honest, uh, mixed feelings on that thing, the impact of term limits. Uh, for legislators and other office holders, uh, I do think uh, there's there's good arguments to, to be had there. Uh, but the end of the true independence uh, of the judiciary, I think, is uh, fundamental to the uh, balance of powers in the three branches of government. What about Medicare for all? If a Medicare for all proposal were to come before the Senate, which I think is highly unlikely, but if it did, where are you on that? Uh, supportive. Look, I think that's a good uh, ideal solution. The question is how quickly can we get there and what's the transition period between now and then. I'm also very supportive of uh, the plans that have been laid out by the Biden-Harris administration to uh, even sooner be able to cover more people. We need to cover as many people as possible uh, regardless of pre-existing conditions. Uh, that made sense prior to this pandemic. It makes even more sense now. Uh, let's talk about the Green New Deal. What aspects of the Green New Deal do you support? Some, none, all? No, uh, uh, again, the Green, Green New Deal, great model. Uh, and what I'm excited to be able to contribute to is the specific plans for how we achieve 
the goals outlined in the Green New Deal, right? For six years uh, of my eight years in the California State Senate, I chaired the uh, Senate Energy Committee overseeing uh, energy utilities and communication. Right? California has been the most aggressive state in the nation on uh, not just tackling climate change overall, but specifically shifting to a uh, aggressive renewable uh, portfolio standard, how much of our electricity comes from renewable energy sources as opposed to fossil fuel. And so we've done the policy work in the weeds, working with utilities, working with uh, solar, wind, uh, geothermal companies and others uh, to make sure that we can maintain uh, grid reliability, protect ratepayers while achieving the uh, environmental protections and gains uh, that uh, we need to do our part uh, for, the, for the planet uh, in the years ahead. Pathway to citizenship. You, you've talked. Uh, you talked in an earlier answer about uh, immigration reform, but a pathway to citizenship. Do you think that there is support among the American people, but more specifically, support within Congress to actually move the ball and make that pathway to citizenship actually law, make it happen? Uh Look, I, I do believe there is. Uh, it's not lost time. I'm not saying it's going to be easy and a slam dunk on day one. I do believe the support is there. Uh, not just the uh, the moral arguments to be made are there, uh, but I think the policy and economic uh, uh, arguments for comprehensive immigration reform, which includes the pathway to citizenship, uh, and no state has more at stake in this conversation than the state of California, not just because of the size of our population, the size of the immigrant population, you know, more dreamers and DACA recipients uh, in California than any other state in the nation. So uh, it's a big, big priority. The Wall Street Journal once described you as a quote, business friendly moderate. Is that, is that accurate? <laughs> uh, look, I, I uh, uh, try not to comment on what other people's call me. I try to let my track record <laughs> speak for itself. Uh, seriously, I mean, I try to make it clear in every campaign, in this case, it's an appointment, not an election, uh, what I stand for and what I'm going to fight for. Uh, will I work with anybody to try to achieve those goals? Absolutely. But proud of my track record, not just as Secretary of State, uh, we've created the most inclusive uh, and secure uh, electoral uh, system in California than any state in the nation. Uh, my time in the legislature, again, advancing proposals to tackle climate change, uh, improve uh, uh, access to higher education, uh, address public health, specifically in areas like diabetes. Uh, you know, the very first bill I introduced when I entered the legislature was to require chain restaurants to post nutritional information on their menus and menu boards because of the type 2 diabetes epidemic in California, especially in communities of color. Uh, took a couple of years to get it done. We got it signed by a Republican governor, to your point earlier about working across the aisle. Uh, and it became, it was integrated into the ACA, so it's actually the foundation for national uh, policy. So uh, a lot of examples of like of that, you know, where, where I lean in, and, and I just got to tell you, what what drives my public service as since day one uh, is issues of equity, the inequities I witnessed as a uh, as a young Latino growing up in Los Angeles, you know, uh, born in the '70s, kind of raised in the '80s and '90s. Uh, it was not always a, an easy experience to go through, uh, and really. Uh, inspired by the movement against Proposition 187, Latino scapegoating anti-immigrant measure in the state of California. Uh, so once I got involved in public service, I realized I can make a big impact on creating a more equitable 
fill in the blank. Are we talking healthcare? Are we talking education? Are we talking public safety in our communities? Are we talking, you know, uh, economic opportunity? On and on and on. That's uh, what's uh, fueled my passion uh, at all levels of government, and it's the passion I'm going to take to the U.S. Senate. Well, one thing I, I I mentioned, and I think you also mentioned in an answer, is that you, yes, you've been appointed to the seat by Governor Newsom, um, and you're you're filling out the rest of of Senator Harris's term, which is two years. So the question now is. Are you committed to running for a full six-year term in 2022? Yes, uh, I do have big Chuck Taylors to fill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> figuratively, not literally. I'm a size 13. So, <laughs> but uh, to the point about seeking re-election, look, I, absolutely. Uh, I've been uh, blessed to uh, have public service opportunities for uh, 20 years now. I enjoy what I do, which is fundamentally how can we. Uh, you know, change, change the world, make this world a better place, and help people. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not something that I'll, you know, dip my toe in for 18 months and call it a day. A lot of these big issues that we've been talking about uh, are going to require comprehensive long-term solutions. And that's my commitment, to be in it for uh, the long-term, not just the, the two years ahead of me, uh, but not taking anything for granted. Uh, it was the governor who spoke to this appointment, but it will be the voters of California who will speak in 2022. So that's not lost on me. As I'm in this transition period, uh, it's a matter of uh, transitioning out of the Secretary of State's office, making the, uh, the welcome as seamless as possible for my successor, uh, Dr. Shirley Weber. Uh, but as I transition into the Senate office, trying to put together a top-notch team that will help me deliver for California uh, starting on day one and earning the support of voters uh, over the next year, uh, year and a half. When you run for re-election in two years, in one sentence, what's what will you say your 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 goals, the goals that have been achieved? Uh, to have had had influence on all the major decisions uh, coming out of Senate, coming out of Congress, uh, being as uh, fierce of an advocate as I can uh, for the most populous state in the nation, the most diverse state in the nation, the state that represents the largest economy of any state in the nation. Uh, you know, our our strength needs to be reflected not just in terms of matter, uh, not just in terms of policy. Uh, that's approved, but uh, in appropriations as well. Um, what do you make? Because I just I just saw a news story, uh, I believe, in Politico about there's a nascent effort to recall Governor Newsom. What's that about? And what if is is there any way that it could actually be successful in the way it was successful in recalling Governor? Was that Gray Davis? Right, that was uh, back in the, in two thousand three, and, and I remember those those days uh, pretty vividly. Uh, look, from all measures, it seems like uh, a lot of the same forces that have been behind Trump uh, for the last four plus years, a lot of the same forces that were behind the incidents of last Wednesday in the Capitol, uh, are the same forces that are behind not just this recall effort, but prior unsuccessful recall uh, efforts to recall Governor Newsom uh, just in, in the last year. Uh, year and a half. Now, that being said, uh, I know the governor's not taking anything for granted to take all the, the political threats uh, seriously. Still a big question as to whether this recall effort will or will not qualify. Uh, it doesn't help democracy when the biggest boost of this recall effort is a, a recent $500,000 infusion of dark money. Uh, that speaks volumes in and of itself. But even if we're uh, to qualify, I think by the time the recall 
uh, is voted upon by the voters, uh, Governor Newsom will have a lot of great things to uh, uh, be able to tell, both in terms of COVID response, budget priorities, uh, action on climate, reopening of schools, uh, on and on and on. So uh, I support the governor to the very end, and I think most Californians will too. Let's end this conversation where we started, and that is with the events of, Jan of January 6th. Last week, I interviewed Congresswoman, brand new Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, Republican, who told me that she she got to town uh, and didn't feel safe even before the sixth. This was last Saturday. She said she did, or Sunday, she didn't feel safe. Then next morning, Monday morning, she put her two young children on a plane back to South Carolina because she didn't want them in town because she didn't feel she didn't feel right. And her her intuition proved right. You're about to be working in the U.S. Capitol. Do you have any concerns about your own safety once you arrive? Uh, look, I'd, I'd be lying if I said that's not on my mind and not on my wife's mind as we're talking about, uh, you know, how we're going to get through the next two weeks as big of a milestone uh, as this is. And again, sobered by the work ahead. Uh, but just appreciating the moment for a second to think uh, that uh, you know my family and I might not be standing right beside me as I raise my right hand and take the oath of office breaks my heart. Uh, but it's the sign of the times, you know, as if trying to uh, navigate travel uh, during COVID wasn't a tough enough challenge to also now consider this. Uh, I don't know what the final answer is going to be, but uh, uh, again, if, regardless of what we decide to do and how we decide to celebrate a sober reminder of the times that we're living in uh, and the uh, the gravity and the urgency of the work ahead. Secretary Padilla, are you surprised that we have not seen or heard or had any hearing or not a hearing, but a, a briefing from a federal agency about what happened on January 6th? So, uh, Surprised, but I guess again, not shocked in part, and this isn't to uh, explain or justify anything, but you know, a, a real serious question how much of law enforcement and FBI, for that matter, work should be uh, directed at investigating what happened on the 6th and beginning to hold people accountable versus ensuring that as we approach January 20th, we're giving it sufficient time, resources, and attention to maintain a safe environment, not just for. Uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, but for everybody in and around the district and around the country for that matter. Some of what you're seeing on social media is calling for armed uh, protests and demonstrations at state, every single state capital, not just the nation's capital. Uh, but I do, again, believe in due time, we need to investigate every lead, uh, prosecute everybody, not just for trespassing, not just for vandalism, for insurrection and rebellion, hold everybody accountable all the way up to Donald Trump. Nobody is above the law. And therefore, you invoked his name, Donald Trump. Last question. What do you think Donald Trump's legacy is? Uh, it's, uh, it, you know, for, for uh, a lot of us, and we, we've known what his legacy was going to be for uh, a long time now, but I think it's manifested itself most significantly in uh, the images of last Wednesday. Uh, he clearly had a huge hand in it. Uh, the dog whistle became a bullhorn uh, and uh, the target was the U.S. Congress. We will recover. Our democracy is resilient. Uh, the damage has been done, and that is the legacy of Donald Trump. California Secretary of State, 
Senator-designate Alex Padilla, thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live and look forward to having you here in this city. And maybe one day when this pandemic is over, we can, we can actually meet face-to-face. -face. <laughs> I'd love that. I'd love that. All right. Thanks again. Have a good day. Thank you. Stay safe, everybody. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Join us tomorrow at 2 a.m. Eastern when my colleague Ellen Nakashima will interview William Evanina, the director of the U.S. National Counterintelligence and Security Center, and hear his threat assessment of America's intelligence vulnerabilities. You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. In the meantime, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.